You're listening to the Hub City Church Podcast. To learn more about Hub City Church, including our gathering times, you can check out our website at albanyhubcity.com. Good morning. Great to see you all here. Hopefully you've dried out a little bit. Um, yeah, so this is a fun one, isn't it? I didn't see anyone get up and try to leave. It's a, it's a really good one. Here's, what I'll, here's the caveat that I will say. Um, I think it's really easy to read a parable like this and immediately want to jump into uh, a lot of eschatology, a lot of like, oh, okay, cool, we get descriptions of this kind of thing, because there's not a lot in our scriptures that describe heavenly realities or hell realities or anything like that. So I think we want to just soak them, you know, or I guess I should say wring the sponge out a little bit. Um, I'll just say as a caveat, the, the perspective I'm coming at from today uh, through, through prep and prayer and just looking at it, I, I don't believe, and it's okay if we disagree, but I don't believe that this is particularly an eschatological uh, passage, that we're supposed to read this and now all of a sudden break down, okay, here's what the hell reality is, here's what the heaven reality is. I believe, first and foremost, this is a, this is a mirror that Christ is holding up to the culture of the day, saying your earthly life has spiritual implications, right? That there is a spiritual reality that's also happening as we are living on this earth. We can't compartmentalize, say, well, there's my physical life, there's my emotional life, there's my spiritual life. We're holistic beings. And so today, from the perspective of this isn't necessarily a description of heaven and hell, but more of a a spiritual reality that is different than what is always seen on earth, okay? I just want to make that caveat. I'd love to grab coffee if you're like, you're wrong. Like, that's totally great. Love everyone here, and I know you guys love me, but I just want to give that caveat, okay? So uh, I just let me pray one more time because I think like anytime we're getting into stuff that just has a lot of stuff into it, we just want to make sure we are just showered um, in the Spirit and God is going before us and we believe that. So let me pray one more time and let's get into it. God, thank you so much for this passage. Thank you so much for your word. Your word is truth and your word is power. And I just pray right now beyond any human words, any English words, anything that we hear, anything we've heard in our life, even about this passage or about you, God, that we can truly see you afresh today, um, that our hearts and our lives can be formed to look more like your son today. And just thank you so much for that mercy that you've given us in your word today. We pray in your name. Amen. Amen. All right, so Luke 16, 19-31, let's get into it. Verse 19, there was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. When's the last time you used the word sumptuously? It's pretty good. Try to use it today. It's a good word. Um, kind of hilariously ironic, I feel like, to be coming off last week of the parable of the lost son, you know, where the, the, the father killed the fattened calf. It seemed like this huge extravagance, and now we're just right into someone who basically did that for themselves every day, right? They just feasted sumptuously. The NIV translated it, lived in luxury. There's a man clothed in purple, meaning wealthy, living in luxury, Verse 20, and then to show the disparageness of the situation, verse 20, at this gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. 
Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. Juxtaposed is this poor man living in the opposite of luxury. Even the dogs, these aren't dogs like they didn't have house pets like we do. It's not like, oh, he got some buddies. (laughs) It's like, no, these are wild dogs that would come and open up his wounds consistently over and over, unable to scab, unable to get better. This was not a good thing. This man was in utter anguish. So right here, Jesus is setting up. We have one on earth. We have one who's living in luxury and one who is in anguish. And notice how he got there. Did you see the language? Lazarus was laid there. Okay, this was a, a first century um, just hospitality rule. If you, if you find someone in need and you can go to someone who has much, lay them at their doorstep. What you're doing is you're asking the homeowner, you're asking that person to say, hey, you have much or you have resources to get a doctor. You can help this person. We are imploring you to care for this person. Lazarus was laid there and nothing ever happened. Now, going off of the kind of parables we've been looking at, what Jesus has kind of had the pattern of doing, wouldn't you expect some sort of right here to be like, so the rich man needs to humble himself, welcome in this man kind of teaching, right? Show generosity, show hospitality, and all that is true. But Jesus has been doing that. And it seems like in this parable, Jesus kind of makes a switch, and he's just going to go in on what's actually happening here. So verse 22, the poor man dies and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried, and in Hades being in torment. Okay, language real quick. Okay, Abraham's side, or sometimes translated Abraham's bosom. Okay, the idea of that is that it's like this close, like he he's comforted. He's somewhere where Abraham, representing this just like he is the father of this faith of this nation that we are a part of, This man, Lazarus, now is being comforted. He's being held, right? This is a comfort, a peace, right? And then Hades, the the other side of that, this is a place where the dead go, right? Even though it's trans, and we'll see it, it's like there's hot and there's heat and stuff, but it's just, it's cold. There's no comfort, right? It's the very opposite of luxury. It's the dwelling place for the dead. And Hades, of course, can be translated hell, can be translated Sheol, right? He, the rich man, lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off. So he's in this Hades environment. He lifted up and he could see Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham. How many of you want to start doing the dance? (laughs) Had many sons? Yeah, Yeah. We'll do it later, don't worry. Have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. You can feel it. Like roles reversed on this other reality, this other side that's happening. Oh, and by the way, the rich man all of a sudden knows who Lazarus is, right? All of a sudden, he sees what Jesus is doing. He's like, he's known. He has been ignoring this man. This isn't just some random thing. He knows Lazarus. There's a, there's a reason Lazarus is named and the rich man is not. He knows he's been intentionally avoiding this man on his doorstep. And without remorse, he sees Lazarus here in this afterlife. And even in this kind of afterlife mirror image, he still sees him as someone he can order about. Send Lazarus. 
He should give me reprieve. He needs to save me out of this. He would never ask Abraham for that. No, he would never do that, right? Send Lazarus. Stop messing around. Get over here, Lazarus. Now, Lazarus is with Abraham. Do you guys remember real recently the last reference we saw Abraham in this context in Luke 13? Okay, Luke 13, Jesus was describing this story. And he describes the people that are outside looking into Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and the prophets dining and they're not able to come in. Luke 13, 28 says, In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves cast out. Like this is the ultimate just desserts. This is exactly what the rich man did to Lazarus, but now he's in the shoes of someone wanting to be shown mercy. And this is how it feels to not receive it. In fact, Abraham says, but Abraham said, child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things and Lazarus in like manner bad things, but now he is comforted here and you are the one in anguish. Like this is really important to pause here. We see here that, that life, as Jesus is telling the story, that, that, that earthly life is not the end, right? That earthly life is not the end, that just gaining for yourself whatever you can grow and have and be and live in luxury here is not the end goal. If you believe in God and eternity, then you know that there is an eternity, right? There is something beyond our life here. Again, the Pharisees, they even taught this. This isn't out of left field for them. We've talked about this a few times. Life after death is not a foreign subject to the people that Jesus is talking to. But the key here is what was done on earth seemed in the story to actually matter on the other side of reality. And I'm just going to say it because it has to be said. What we do in this life echoes in eternity, right? That's kind of true, right? How we live on earth has implications for life on earth. What we live on earth has implications for life after earth. And this is different than works-based salvation. Okay, we're going to get into this in a little bit. But this is, it's biblical that our life now matters and how we live and how we treat others has a purpose. Abraham continues, verse 26. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able and none may cross from here to us. There's this great gap, okay, that's decided. It's not something that gets decided there, but it's something that has already been decided. The man responds, and he said, Then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house. Again, send Lazarus, right? Send him, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. Would they be any different than how he was? Right? What if this had already happened? This is a thought I had. What if this had already happened to someone else and Lazarus appeared to this rich man and this rich man, nothing happened, right? Just this cycle of happening. Honestly, this is the closest thing to repentance we've gotten so far from this guy. 
At first, even in this afterlife state, he just wanted to be refreshed, wanted this pain to be removed. It was all about him and his longings and his comfort. And now he's saying no one should experience this reality. So go save the rest of my family. Now that he sees the error of his ways, he asks that Abraham save others that he cares about. But Abraham says this, verse 29, Well, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. And he said to them, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. The man begs, if only they knew that this was the truth, that they would repent and turn from their evil ways, but it's too late. The men, man realized what he's done too late. He realized the great chasm too late, and he's realized his own family's demise too late, right? Too late is not something we talk about a lot, right? There's a lot of, like it's, never, like, it's never too late to experience the grace of Jesus. That's true, amen? It's never too late to turn and repent in, in life to the grace of Jesus. But there does seem to be a moment where it is too late, right? There is a decision that was made to not follow in the footsteps of Jesus. And usually for any human, that too late is our physical death right? You only have a finite time on earth to do the things you need to do before you can't. But the torment of this reality is this rich man is realizing this from the other side. He's realizing it too late. All of a sudden, this is real. This is really happening, and he's scared for his family. He needs them to be saved from this. But this is one of the great misunderstandings of salvation, right? Usually, it's either salvation is being saved from or being saved to something. I would argue that they're both the same, but let's break it down a little bit. If you've ever seen kind of the billboard gospels on the streets, right, there's, there was one that was down I-5 for a while, and they're usually meant to shock you and to think into something, right? And I always look at them, and I just always wonder, like, I wonder who is changed by this, you know, and maybe, maybe, right? But one that was down I-5 for a while was, do you know where you're going when you die? And then some Bible hotline number, which I always want to call. I, I, I'm driving, so I can't take the picture. What does that spark in someone? Do you know where you're going to go when you die? What does that spark in someone? First of all, this is just my commentary, it, it kind of relegates salvation to just this afterlife. Okay, when you die, what's the afterlife? So it's just focusing on salvation as afterlife, 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 okay? Second, if it sparks anything in someone, it would be the question, well, no, I don't know, so what are the options? Okay, let's just walk through a brief conversation. Well, first there's this burning lake of fire, gnashing of teeth, ghouls, goblins, demons, never-ending torment, or heaven, you know? Okay, heaven sounds good, great. So would you like to accept Jesus Christ as your Savior so that you could go there when you die? Sure, neato. Like that's a lot, that's sometimes, and I don't want to be, a, I don't want to simplify it, but a lot of times that's kind of the simplification of it, right? Jesus today is preaching something different, right? He's sharing the story, and in the story, this Abraham, this character of this great lineage of faith, that, that Abraham, it was, it was attributed to him as faith that he followed in God, that he believed in God's promises, he believed who God was, it actually meant something for his life as he was living 
In the parable, Abraham says, they have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. So the question is, what would or what should the rich man and his family have gotten from Moses and the prophets that they've already missed? What should they have gotten? Now, to, to, for the sake of time, as fun as it would be to run into every single passage about Moses and the prophets, um, what did Moses most represent in the nation of Israel in the history, right? Something to do with two tablets, right? Something like that, right? This law, the commandments, the law. Thank you, Sean. Yeah, the law, right? It's, just, it's really a simplification that Moses kind of represented the law. Right, this thing passed down, and the prophets were the ones called out to be the mouthpiece of God's word, to bring to mind and to heart God's moving in action on earth. So we have this great nation of Israel with such a rich history, its origins are founded, and the foundation of it is on the law and the prophets. And what is the message of the law and the prophets? And I'm going to let Jesus teach us here. Matthew 22 Verse 25, the Pharisees and scribes were in front of Jesus, asking him, what is the most important commandment? Matthew 22, 35, and one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question, teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depends all the law and the prophets. So a simplification could be the law and the prophets equals love God and love others. Okay, that's a really simplified way. It's more complicated, but it also is that simple, right? Love God and love others. This is what Father Abraham says from the afterlife says that they should be already knowing, already believing, and not somebody from the afterlife showing up to warn everybody. This is to be the heart and attitude of the believer. And this is why someone coming from the dead isn't actually going to matter, because what is that warning going to do? That warning is just going to be the same of salvation from something. Turn from your ways. Don't go there because, man, I was just came, and it's, it's bad. You don't want to do that anymore, right? So the salvation is based on, I want to be freed from that. I don't want that reality. But the heart of God through the law and the prophets is to form a people who are seeing their sin for what it is, right? Repenting, seeing others around them as image bearers of God and worth serving and laying their lives down for following in the example of King Jesus as they follow his ways forevermore. That's just not saved from something. That is saved to something. Saved to something so much bigger than just themselves. So much bigger than just their get-out-of-hell-free card. So we talked a lot about things. Let's come back to our parable. Context. Okay, it's always key in parables. You can take a story and you can break it apart, but we have to see what is Jesus doing in its context. Jesus has been in this string of teaching, combating the religious leaders, specifically the Pharisees with the hypocrisy of their belief system in God, but they're still living out of the pleasures of the world. It's not lining up. For the Pharisees who were in this camp, salvation was theirs due to birthright, right? They were the sons of Abraham, and yet Jesus is telling them a story. 
were the ones who were setting themselves up, living in luxury at the expense of others, in the end are not welcome in Abraham's rest. Jesus is drawing a line here. He's been growing in his arguments all the way. Remember the first parable we looked at, juxtaposing from this prostitute and a Pharisee to humble living, seeing others just as important, if not more, to now seeing beyond earthly life and how what happens here matters on a spiritual level. And the line he's drawing is not in what they believed in, but how they were living that belief out. The Pharisees believed and taught in an afterlife, but they were building themselves up, creating this great chasm between them as good and the other as bad. And yet that same chasm gets reversed, doesn't it, in that mirrored reality of the afterlife. They find themselves on the other side of the heavenly blessing, in torment with this uncrossable chasm to where they want to go. This is the spiritual mirror of what's going on. Now, I want to push in a little bit. You guys okay? Doing good? Okay. All right. Okay, I'm putting myself in here too, so it's not, no part of like judgment or being unfair or anything like that. This is for all of us. If we're honest, most of us, as is common to do with the parables, we want to put ourselves into this into these positions, right? And again, we've taught from the get-go that parables of Jesus are about the values of the kingdom of God, not just behavioral or not just moralistic teachings. They're different, okay? But I would guess that most of us in here would not want to be the rich man in the story, right? Most of us in here, like luxury sounds nice, but like we don't want that reality, right? So we read the story and we're like, okay, we don't want to be the rich man, okay? But also, I would also argue that probably most of us in here don't want to be Lazarus. Like, it's not like go out here and go sit in the rain and have a bunch of sores untreated and like let dogs lick. Like, that's not great, right? So if we're honest, like, they're very extreme. They're very extreme. Rich, and I think Jesus is doing something with that. He's creating this chasm in your heart and your mind, right? He's creating these two things that neither should be good, neither are right. It's supposed to show the extremes, and it's supposed to question, so where can they meet in the middle? How can they both be where there is no oppressed, there is no oppressor? How can they be together? Where's that middle ground? What does it mean, as Jesus said earlier, to lose your life now to find it? Well, I think, first of all, we can learn and practice what the rich man and his family needed to learn and to practice. What did Abraham say? the law and the prophets, which, as we looked at, was love God and love others. See, we're in the same position as the Pharisees were. We have the law. We have God's word, right? We know the prophets. I can go and read to you any of the prophets of God right now. We have Jesus' teachings on earth. We know it's about love God and love others. And yet, if we're honest, how easy is it to sit back and to feed our appetites, sit with that fire insurance, and do what comes natural and live our lives knowing that we have this eternity set in store. And at the same time, we understand that we are broken human beings, right? We have wounds. We have regrets. We feel as outcasts at times, and it's hard to not envy others or want what they have. Remember Lazarus? He longed to eat from the scraps of the table. And this is where I believe the good news of Jesus really hits home. 
right? I, again, I don't believe this story is a commentary on, on can we lose our salvation? Can we do enough bad that we could lose our salvation? I would question why would we want to try that? <laughs> but we aren't just saved from this hellish reality. We're saved to a new heavenly reality now. Jesus said the kingdom of heaven is near, is now and salvation in Jesus has already come. Here's the crazy thing. Hades, if you look into it, translated hell, it's only used very few times in New Testament, but it's never used as a final resting place for believers. It's never in that same context. So in this parable today, the rich man, he's supposed to be this kind of unbeliever character, someone who's not surrendered to God. But who is the rich man also supposed to represent in Jesus' teachings of the parables? Right? The Pharisees who are rejecting Jesus. See how like subversive and offensive this actually is? The question has to, has to be asked, did Jesus just say because of their actual actions and lifestyle, not just their belief or their heritage, and inability to see others as important in the kingdom of heaven, did he actually say you are considered like an unbeliever because you are not actually living out what? you believe. Though they technically are children of Abraham in terms of genealogy, they're not welcomed into that eternal blessing because of their lifestyle. Earlier in this chapter, Jesus has been teaching this to his followers and to the Pharisees. Luke 16, 13. No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Jesus is calling them out for dipping their toes in both camps. This is the next verse of that. The Pharisees, who then were lovers of money, heard all these things and did not repent. They ridiculed him. Jesus responds, 1615, You are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. The law and the prophets were until John. Since then, the good news of the kingdom of God is preached, and everyone forces his way into it. But it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. Easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for just even a dot of the law, for anything to pass away. This has the law of God isn't just a set of rules. It's something that is supposed to be fulfilled in him and in his people. And then if you look back in your Bibles, he has a super random teaching all of a sudden on divorce. Have you noticed that? If you look in your Bibles or whatever, all of a sudden he says this in verse 18. Everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. And he who marries a woman divorced from her husband commits adultery. Huh? <laughs> like, wait, why, where did that come from? But of course, it's Jesus. It's not random. Everything is so intentional. What did he just say? It's easier for heaven and earth to pass away than just even a dot of a law to become void. God's covenantal relationship with his people has always been akin to that of some wedding ceremony, of a marriage. Right? God has married himself to an adulterous people in order to purify them and love them unconditionally. It's about God in this, in this scenario. And yet here the Pharisees in their corrupt ways have done what it's, what's like divorcing themselves from this covenant by God, by doing what they deem right in their own eyes. The subject of the divorce passage, if you read it, it's not the woman, it's 
the man who has done this thing to her. So Jesus is calling them out for very realistically maybe doing this exact thing in their lives, but definitely on a spiritual level or thinking they're crushing it according to the letter of the law, but not in the spirit or heart of the law. The law that was always meant to spark in God's people a heart for him and a heart for others. A heart that would never let their own life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness be at the expense of others. And then he tells this parable today. The rich man in the story wasn't wrong because he was wealthy. The rich man was wrong because he did nothing for the man in need. Right? In fact, not only did he do nothing, but his lifestyle actively continued suffering for another. I believe this parable, like I said, is less about what heaven and hell and more about the reality of living like earth as it is in heaven. The kingdom of heaven is what Jesus has been teaching all through these parables. It's about grace, humility, love, serving, hospitality, generosity, mercy. You go on, right? But even though this parable may be about that, there's still this reality of heaven and hell to deal with. If this parable is more about the spiritual mirror than our physical reality of what's actually going on, then we need to know and to deal with the ways that we're growing in either this heavenly or hellish ways. And I'm a, I'm a rather large fan, you guys know this, of C.S. Lewis, fantastic writer, and just love his, the way he thinks and writes. And he has this great book, The Great Divorce. Has anyone read it in here? Yeah, okay, cool. Um, it's a great book, highly recommend it, but he, he kind of just explores this idea of this afterlife and kind of the heaven and the hell and the in-between and just kind of, it just sparks up in your mind. But I thought this was a great insight. This is from his book, great, great, The Great Divorce. Christianity asserts that we're going to go on living forever, and that must either be true or false. Now, there are a good many things which, may not, which would not be worth bothering about if I'm only going to live 80 years or so, but which I had better bother about if I'm going to go on living forever. Perhaps my bad temper or my jealousy are getting worse so gradually that the increase in my lifetime will not be very noticeable, but it might be absolute hell in a million years. If, in fact, Christianity is true, hell is precisely the correct technical term for it. Hell begins with a grumbling mood, always complaining, always blaming others, but you are still distinct from it. You may even criticize it in yourself and wish you could stop it, but there may come a day when you can no longer do so. Then there will be no you left to criticize the mood or even to enjoy it, but just to grumble itself, going on forever like a machine. It is not a question of God sending us to hell. In each of us, there is something growing which will be hell unless it is nipped in the bud. You know, it's an interesting way to think about it. The rich man actually chose hell because of the heaven he tried to create for himself on earth. It's always wrong when someone's hell or someone's heaven means hell for someone else. That is always wrong. That quote in this parable should spark some introspection. If what we do and how we live physically on earth has spiritual implications and spirit is all we've got after this life, then I want to ask some questions, okay? I think I turned this off. Nice. What if that secret addiction you have 
that you justify that it isn't all that bad actually matters? What if cheating on that test or taxes or lying to an official to get something that you don't deserve actually matters? What if comparing yourself to a family member or having to have more stuff than your neighbors actually matters? What if your lifestyle actively caused someone else's suffering? What if following Jesus radically now actually matters, right? Just think about that, that mirror, right? Being put up and saying, actually, how we live, if it actually, spiritually, really matters. And, and maybe more things came to your head. If those things actually matter, what would change today? Much like Thomas at the end of John's gospel, many of us need to see and feel the holes of Jesus' feet and sides. To say, like, is this real? I don't know. Right? I mean, I, I, I think that I could benefit from someone from the dead coming to me. <laughs> right? And say, Matt, you're not doing great. You know. But what does Jesus say in this parable? And what does he say to Thomas? John 20, 29. Jesus said to him, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. I'm going to go on a limb and say we all struggle with this at some level. We all struggle with the question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And that's okay. That's, that's a great question, right? We should want that and struggle with because it should be a struggle. But the question, my opinion, should turn from what do I have to do to how radically can I give myself to God and his ways Another way to say it, how radically can I love God and love others and see how he provides for me more than I could ever do on my own? Yes, it's stretching. Of course, it's uncomfortable. We as a society are not good at being uncomfortable. And yes, it's worth everything we could give to it. We are a people called to be poor to this world, but rich in spirit. And that's what we have to submit ourselves to to submit ourselves to a lifestyle that is defined by the law and the prophets, by love God and love others. That's the value of God's kingdom. And a couple of reflection questions on both of those real quick. These are for all of us. And just love God. How's that going for you? First of all, do you accept his love? It's hard to accept love. Do you accept his love? Do you find it hard to accept his love? Part of loving God is knowing and truly believing how deep the Father's love for you is. What practices or ways are you forming a heart of love for God in your life? How have you arranged your time, your priorities, your entertainment, your finances, your thought life to love God? What falls into that category? What does it look like for you to be daily in the presence of God's love. How's that going? Are we a people defined by that? Loving others, being filled up with that love of God, accepting that love of God, trusting then that it's the same, that same love that's being poured out. Who has God placed in your life to care for? Family, beyond family, what has God blessed you in abundance with in order to give away to those in need? Where are we living sumptuously that we could give away? 
Is your life in a habit of giving away or more of a habit of keeping or keeping safe? And this is a good challenging question. What are areas we're uncomfortable with other people? Can we press into those areas? I ask these questions of myself and us because here's the deal. If you believe in Christ, you're a new creation. You have the deposit and guarantee of the Holy Spirit in your heart. You now have become this temple of which God resides within you. That means you and your life is a witness to what God is like. And the invitation for others to know God is through knowing you. We get to be the witness of this. The value system we need to have is to recognize where we are guilty of living in luxury, where others are suffering, and how we can lower ourselves to raise others up. Hub City, we have the opportunity to live this out right here in our church community. Look around, like with us together. Then, of course, in our city, we love our city, and there's so many needs in our neighborhoods to go not with a, to go out not with a chip on our shoulders because we know God, but to go out to lower ourselves, to raise other up, witnessing the good news that there is a God who is love, and in Him there is salvation from ourselves. We on our own cannot produce heaven. Right? There's nothing close to the heavenly reality of God's presence with his people that we can force on our life without God. But what we are really good at, humans are really good at certainly causing hell on earth. Right? We're certainly good at creating that. So we need to be saved from ourselves. This is why we are here today, not just to learn new information or to see something in a different light, but we have to have hearts radically transformed and shaped within us to die to ourselves all over again. When we respond today through prayer, is God save us from ourselves so that we can pour out. Turn us in a new direction so that we may follow you and live in the reality that is heaven on earth now through the person of Jesus Christ. We're going to respond to that today. We're going to respond to the new, this, again, another parable of this kingdom value coming upon the people of God. That if we would humble ourselves to see others as worthy of raising up, to, to follow in the footsteps of Christ's example, to lay our life down, for there's no greater love than that. So we pray and we sing and we give of our earthly treasures for the common good of the community. And when you go to the table, Sheena's prepared communion for us. We just have that bread and that cup. Just remember on the night Jesus was betrayed, the night before his death, he says, hey guys, you might not totally get this moving forward. Uh, you will, but right now it might seem weird, but this bread is like my body, given for you, broken for you. This, this juice or wine at the time, I'm sure, is like my blood that's poured out for you. And when we go to the cross, remember it is, we can only be transformed because of the grace of Christ. We can only be transformed because of the love that he first loved us with. Let me pray and let's respond to our good God today.